So this is the last Sunday in Advent and our last sermon in our Waiting for Jesus series. Advent is by very nature a season of waiting. Christmas celebrates the arrival of the baby boy named Jesus, whose name means God saves. With his arrival, he was Emmanuel, God with us. And on the cross, he showed us that God is for us. And he left so that in the age of the church, we would grow and expand so that many would be called sons and daughters of God. Now we eagerly await his second coming when Christ will come in power and victory to bring an end to all suffering and bring about the fullness of his kingdom where there will only be ever-increasing joy. But until that day, we wait. So our goal in this series has been to lean into the waiting. Our waiting isn't a pointless exercise of futility. In fact, God intends to use our waiting to form and shape us into the likeness of Jesus. This season of waiting is meant to dig up the idols of our hearts. Can you turn this down just a little bit? I think we're getting some feedback in here. (laughs) Great. So this season's meant to dig up some idols of our hearts so that we can put them to death and be freed and depend and cling to Christ with our whole heart. We've looked at our need to wait with the right perspective We need to see the bigger picture to know what God's doing and that he's in control. We looked at our need to wait with patience. Clint preached on that the other week. Waiting fundamentally requires that we have a deep-rooted trust in Jesus. And last week, we looked at waiting with a plan. We're not simply killing time until Jesus comes back. He intends that we would live as residents, not refugees, that we would see our neighbors as friends, not enemies, and that we would live as citizens of the kingdom, not exiles. And today, we're going to close out the series as we look at Isaiah and talk about what it means to wait in power. How can we endure to the end when it feels like our strength is depleted and we have nothing left to give? Let's pray as we look at Isaiah 40. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word, that you would... uh, Just form and shape us into the likeness of Jesus while we wait for him as we sit here and listen to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Boston is home to one of the great marathons of the world. Every year, runners from around the world run 26.2 miles in the Boston Marathon. And I read an article the other day that talks about what they call the wall. Have you ever heard of it? Every runner who's run more than a half marathon apparently has hit the wall. And what happens is your brain goes on autopilot because you've been running for so long that all your nutrients and blood are going to your muscles instead of your brain, and you can't even do things like simple math. The article puts it this way. It is the point where your body and your mind are simultaneously tested. It's the perfect intersection of fatigue and diminished mental faculties. Or as you most likely remember it, It's the exact point where all your pre-race plans went out the window. How you handle the wall can literally make or break your marathon. So when all of our concentration is on survival, we lose sight of what we know to be true, and we lose our ability to reason. How do we run the marathon of life and break through the many walls we encounter? Where do we find the power that allows us to push through the overwhelming fatigue to finish the race. 
As we look at our passage today, we'll see the struggle for power, the source of power, and the solution to power. So now, in order for these words to make sense, we have to know the context in which they were written. So just so you know, a civil war divided Israel into two parts, the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And as the years went by, things spiraled downward. People reduced their relationship to God to a list of do's and don'ts. Those who could keep it together looked down on those who couldn't. Those who couldn't keep it together gave up and simply lived for themselves or picked up idols from surrounding areas. Pride and selfishness turned God's people away from him. When we pick up in Isaiah 40, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are in exile, conquered by Babylon. So Isaiah 40 is written to a people in exile waiting for the Lord to deliver them. He's promised them that this is just for a season that he will deliver them, but they'll have to wait 70 years. So disaster struck, hope is gone, despair has set in, Isaiah addresses a despondent people. In verses 1 through 11, God promises that he will deliver his people, and this is meant to give them hope. In verses 12 through 26, they tell of the power of the glory of God, which is meant to show that he's both willing and able to make good on his promises. And now, in verses 27 through 31, Isaiah addresses the real concern of how to endure to the end when you feel like giving up. Let's read verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? So let's step into their shoes for a minute. This is a war-torn people. They're a conquered people. They're already tired. They're spent. They've got nothing. And now they need to muster up the physical, emotional, and spiritual strength to endure to the end. At this point, doubts creep in, and despair takes over. Isaiah puts in the mouths of his people the perennial question of all who suffer. Where is God? Does he not see me? Does he just not care? This question resonates with us because it's not just their question. It's our question, too. There has not existed a person who could form a thought that has not formed this thought in some way. Because suffering and struggling are the great equalizers of life. Some conclude God doesn't act because he doesn't wish to act or he doesn't care to act. Others answer he's unable to. He would if he could, but he doesn't. And both conclusions are a mix of sorrowful lament and doubt. In times like this, we're grasping and we're willing to say just about anything. Everything's on the table. Our circumstances can easily become the ground on which we start to doubt and think, where's God in all this? And why is he not doing something about it? Has he forgotten? Or is it it even worse? Does he just not care? Listen to the pain in the words, My way is hidden from the Lord. Is he so great and we're so small that we're hidden from him? Listen to the defeat in the words, My rights have been disregarded by the Lord. He doesn't care about me. My case of injustice is in front of his face daily, but it gets dismissed every time without a hearing. Now this is questioning the very nature and character of God, who is by definition a God of justice. God always does what's right. He's never unfair, and he's never untrue. So this question doubts the justice of God, and it says he either doesn't know what's right 
or he doesn't care to act. Doubt creeps in about the goodness of God. And in our waiting, in our longing for resolve and relief, we can start to doubt God's goodness and his compassion toward us. We feel as if we're hidden from God and disregarded by God. None of us lives with an unwavering faith, and we'll all ask questions at various points in our life. The question, where was God when I needed him? To put in modern terms, the struggle is real. But Isaiah doesn't stay here. He pushes forward. He reasons with us and challenges us to doubt our doubts and remember who God is so that we can get back on track and connect with the God who doesn't leave us in our struggle. Let's look at verse 28 together. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, as Isaiah begins to address the struggler's doubts, it's important to understand that the Bible recognizes two kinds of doubt. One kind of doubt struggles to believe in the midst of dire circumstances. Now, this kind of doubt wants to believe, and it's open to God's answers and willing to listen. The other kind of doubt resists belief, even when good sufficient reason is given. This kind of doubt refuses to believe out of defiance. When we're here, we're not looking for answers. Clint said it before, and it's worth repeating. There's a difference between faith-seeking understanding and unbelief-seeking validation. It's important to stop and ask, where am I on the spectrum? Are you starting from faith, looking for answers? Or are you starting from a place of cynical defiance? Now, doubt isn't a sin. We're all going to doubt. But the question is, where do we go with our doubts? Do we entertain them? Do we feed them? Do we let them grow so much towards cynicism that they give way to unbelief? Or do we take them captive and bring them into the light of truth? Do we challenge our doubts with the truth of Scripture? Isaiah addresses their struggle by looking to the source of power, God himself. He says, stop for a minute. Stop looking at everything around you. Don't get your reality from what you see around you. Ground your reality in God himself. And sometimes we have to relearn the things that we already know and to open our eyes to what we've already seen, to open our ears to what we've already heard. So he quickly powers through the essentials about God. Why? Because as Ray Ortland says, everything that matters in life hangs on who God is. First, he says, God is eternal and everlasting. When we're in the midst of our struggle, we feel the pressure and tension, and we're bound by the tyranny of the urgent. And that's usually when we start to sin and get impatient. But here Isaiah tells us God isn't confined to time. He is eternal. God is equally present in all points of time. He's at the same moment behind us, within us, and in front of us. God is working his purposes out at a pace according to his deadlines and his timelines. He's never hurried. He doesn't change, and he doesn't waver. He's the beginning and the end. He has always existed, and he always will exist. The second, God is the creator and sustainer of everything. He doesn't create and back away as if the creation should just hold itself together. God maintains a perpetual relationship with his creation. Third, God is always at work. He doesn't grow weary or faint. He doesn't need a break. He lacks neither energy nor commitment. His strength doesn't falter, 
nor does he grow tired with the tasks at hand. He never has to abandon his purposes because they're unrealizable or, or stop doing what he's doing because he needs a break. And finally, God is wise. He's understanding. His knowledge and his wisdom are unsearchable, unending, and inexhaustible. He's unfathomable in his ways of judgment. He sees right through the heart of a situation, and he sees things we could never see. And he always does what's good and right. Isaiah gives an answer that's meant to challenge our doubts and assumptions about God. Don't you understand? Don't you see that God is utterly different and other than we are? He doesn't work on our timetable, and he doesn't have our limitations. He's far more caring than you or I could ever be, and he is at work. You can depend on him. The reason we feel overwhelmed in our circumstances and struggles is because we're looking to ourselves and saying, how am I going to get through this? Isaiah says, don't look to yourself. Look to God. Our inability to discern what he's doing means, doesn't mean that he's asleep on the, on the job. And our inability to see purpose and a point in what he's doing doesn't mean that there isn't a purpose or a point. So children, especially young children, hardly ever see the reason behind what their parents are doing. Even when we spell it out for them, there's simply not a way for a two-year-old to comprehend the entirety of their life and what it means to delay instant gratification for lasting satisfaction. There's no way they can comprehend that behavioral patterns today can create horrific consequences later in life. There's no way they can comprehend how much we love them, that when we tell them to wait or, God forbid, tell them no, that it's not because we don't love them, but it's because we do love them. And family, the gap between a two-year-old's ability to understand and mine is an inch compared to the light years of distance between the way that God understands and the way that we understand. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-good. God's not forgetful and tired. We're limited by time. He's not. We're limited by our ability to see, and he's not. We're limited in terms of power, and he's not. We're limited in our endurance, and he is not. John Piper puts it this way, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. In the midst of our struggle and doubt, Isaiah says, look to God. He is the source of everything we need, the source of power. Now let's look at the last few verses to see the solution and how we can wait in power. Look with me at verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and shall be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. Out of an overflow of God's goodness and strength, because he's caring, loving, generous, and merciful, he gives power and strength to the faint and the weak. To be faint and weary is to fail under life's pressures. To be weak is an innate, a lack of the innate strength that it takes to handle all that life has thrown at you. So who are the faint and the weak? The point of this passage is that all of us, to one degree or another, will go through times when the pressure is too much and we simply don't have what it takes. And the good news is that God gives power to the faint. 
He gives strength to the weak. He does this because he's strong and generous to those who trust in him. God isn't absent, unavailable, or unwilling to help. Merely complaining about our problems won't make them go away. The solution is to recognize that everything happens as part of God's sovereign plan and that God freely and abundantly gives strength to those who need it in difficult times. Isaiah says, even youths grow weary and young men get exhausted. These are words that describe a man in his prime. They've been used to describe uh, athletes who are prepared for the arena or soldiers. He's saying that even the strongest men grow tired. Even the most vital and vibrant on earth grow tired. Their strength has limits. At our most vigorous and even our most strong times, we are still not strong enough to handle all that's thrown at us. If even the best that collapse, if even the best collapse, then what happens to the rest of us? At some point, our strength won't be enough. Our savviness won't cut it. Our resources will run out. What do we do when there's nothing left? Isaiah says, we wait on the Lord. So what does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means to have confidence, expectancy, and hope in the Lord. It's a deeply rooted trust that says, though I don't know why this is happening, I trust that you do. It means to live in tension of promises revealed yet fulfilled. It means to see the time of waiting not as wasting time, but as a means by which God is fulfilling his promises to us beyond what we even know to ask. God answers our prayers according to his will, not ours. And that's good news for you and me. Waiting is what faith does before God shows up. God gives us great and precious promises, and then he calls us to wait as he works to bring them to realization. To wait on him is to admit that we have no other help, either in ourselves or in another. This begs the question, are we willing to wait on God's timing? Are we willing to let God set the pace? Trusting in his time means that we believe he's in control. And more than that, it means that we believe we shouldn't be in control and that he's doing a better job at being God than we ever could. And when we wait on him, his promise is that he will renew our strength. To wait on him is to declare our confidence in his eventual action on our behalf. It's a life of confident expectation. For those who give up their own frantic efforts to save themselves and turn expectantly to God, he will replace and replenish their worn-out strength. He doesn't leave us bankrupt. It says those who wait on the Lord are like eagles who can soar for hours without growing weary. He says we will be able to run and not grow weary, and we will walk and we won't grow faint. When we need to run, we'll have what we need to run. And for the day in and day out living, we will walk and we'll go the distance. Energy for quick bursts when it's needed and endurance for the long walk of life. We'll have daily strength for daily living. For those who wait on the Lord, where God calls us to go, he will provide what we need. Practically speaking, this first means that we come to the realization that we need the Lord, that we stop looking elsewhere for strength. It's not enough to just know that we need help. 
but that we need the Lord's help. Second, it means to hope and trust in the Lord. Trust enables people to walk the path that God has laid out for them without growing weary and without growing faint. When we doubt, when we can't understand, Isaiah tells us, look to the Lord. Look away from yourself and look to him. Expect from him. He is the ever-giving God. He gives strength to surmount the problem, to run the race, and best of all, to walk the path of endurance. Now, this isn't a strength injection like morphine to dull the pain or steroids to outgrow the struggle or even epinephrine to surge through it. It's the Lord himself. He gives you more of himself, his nature and character working in you so that you have his strength, his endurance, and his wisdom. When we've got nothing left physically and when we're drained emotionally, fatigued spiritually, the good news is that God sees you. That's the profound truth of Advent. Advent means I see you. I'm for you. I'm with you. Jesus experienced suffering and struggle. He lived a a life that was marked by faithful waiting on the Lord. He trusted the Father's will even when he didn't like where it was going. And at every turn, the Lord was faithful to give strength to endure, faith enough for the day. He trusted the Father all the way through the cross. He was given strength to endure the sting of death, believing and expecting resurrection. And on that third day, he was indeed raised. The ultimate stamp of the trustworthy of God is our risen Savior. And he has promised to one day come again to restore this broken world, to bring light where there was darkness, to mend what was torn. So why can we trust God? The message of Advent is Christ has come and he will come again. We can trust him to fulfill his promise because he has made good on his promise to deliver us from sin and death through Jesus Christ. So he sees you, he's for you, and he's with you. Let's pray.